0: you're listening to the Lean Built Podcast. I'm Jay. And I'm Andrew. In this podcast, we discuss our manufacturing companies, lean principles, and the freedom that we're pursuing in life and business.
1: So I'm back to considering lathes again. Here we go. And we've had conversations back and forth about some Haas options, some Doosan options. I've been thinking about Miano. Miano looks awesome. But This is the whole, should you buy your second CNC machine first question? It's better to make a low level lateral move into lathe work because I don't have any lathe experience. I've got two employees who have lathe experience and they're going to be the ones dealing with this machine, setting it up, running it, taking care of it. It's really not going to be my bag. Mm -hmm. I don't want to roadblock production on a machine by saying, we're going to buy this new machine that I don't understand and we're not going to do anything with it. Until I feel comfortable that I've learned the machine inside and out so that I can run it too, I just don't need to. And that's going to be a really weird transition for me. It'll be the first time we will have bought a CNC machine that I'm not going to be the primary operator on.
0: Yeah. That's a huge point of maturity in the life of your company. For example, I made a very distinct decision to not learn the lathe's. Well, the on lathes to be specific, part of it was my frustration with the Fanuk control. When I had a Haas lathe at one point, I thought, well, let me just see. I just need to get into the, the bigger lathe ecosystem to see, hey, are there any products? Are there any problems inherent with lathes that are not being solved by the tooling companies? For the most part, lathes are too simple for Pearson Workholding to produce products for them. So I just got in there. The Haas control was familiar from the mill to the lathe. So it's pretty straightforward. But no, I I got out pretty quick. And and I have two guys that are ridiculously proficient in lathes. And not just lathes, but like high-end lathes, like our our Pumas and our MX, which is now SMX 21 or 2600 on the Doosan side. But yeah, it it is going to be one of those things. And I'm pretty sure I said in the last podcast, yeah, you have a reason for buying it. But then when you get it, it really gives you like a creative momentum. Like, Oops. Hey, I have this machine that can do this. Let's yep. get, let's start creating things that we can. Let's make round stuff. stuff. Yeah. And then Let's make octagonal stuff. Mm-hmm. And then you're right back to making parts that were traditionally made on a mill on a lathe, like on our, on our MX. Yeah. So yeah, I don't know enough about Mianos because there's just not a lot here on the West coast. I've found it's kind of like a Midwest brand okay, from my perspective, but but I've only heard good things about them just online. Yeah.
1: The question of control, if, if we're looking at Miano, we're looking probably at a Mitsubishi or a FANUC control, depending on the model. Can and you choose? You comment, I don't think you can choose within the model. Obviously, if I'm trying to buy a lathe, I don't want to invest in a control system that I hate. Yeah. And we don't currently have any FANUC or any MITS controls on our floor. We're brother only at the moment. And- FANUC seems like it is kind of the clunky, but standardized everywhere, robust industrial control that you see on all kinds of machines. Mm -hmm. So I've got guys who have used FANUC before. They're not scared of it. I don't particularly want to learn it. I'm sure that parts it would frustrate me to tears. Mm -hmm. But if I don't have to interface with it every day and we can make good parts with the machine,
0: I'm not going to sweat it too hard. Yeah. Well, I certainly have strong opinions and there's strong public opinions about FANUC controls. You know, I was, I just heard, I think it was Grimsmo on his podcast. He was talking with John and telling him like, he described it perfectly. So like the FANUC control or FANUC control, whatever is it's old and it's stable. And there's lots of support. There's a fair amount of parts. I think Saunders has a FANUC control on his new, what are those like multi-axis machines that they have? A A Williman? Yeah, Willimon, yeah. And even like a really old machine still has parts and people that know how to deal with it, broken broken stuff or old stuff. But yeah, I mean, it, it's sorely lacking in its intuitive nature. And look, our MX has a finite control and it is fine and it's powerful and it does a job. But I think just you being a brother user, you would be Really disappointed with the finet control because it, the the brother controls are very user friendly. Yeah. And another guy in town gave me a tour of the control. I'm like, oh man, that's awesome! All the hotkeys, shortcut keys, all that stuff. It's um, pretty just easy layout. to navigate. It's yeah, very much so. Yeah. So that would be a downside. But I don't know enough about the Mitsubishi controls. That's the only other thing. Have you okay, taken fair. like a demo of it? I haven't yet. So one of the particular days we're looking at is
1: a dual spindle Y-axis Miano. With a Fanuc control. We were also looking at a similar Miano dual spindle Y axis with a Mitz control. They're two different models, two slightly different sizes. The bigger one, the dealer has a showroom machine that's available at a better price for a value. The smaller one, we'd have to order in and have delivered. So I, I've not made up my mind really on it. And we're figuring out what kind of work to line up for it because realistically, I'm not gonna pull a whole family of lathe parts out of my hat. In the first month, and then have this machine busy with production for us. So, we're trying to balance out the decision to purchase or not and timeline on purchasing Mm -hmm. with the availability of some stable outside work that could give us some initial, some steady throughput on the machine monthly so that we have something that's going to be reliably there to help defray the cost of owning the machine. Mm -hmm. Because if we had enough work that the machine payment was automatically covered every month. Then the timeline I'm buying it is fairly flexible because it will start paying for itself. But yeah. bringing in a more expensive you know, dual spindle Y axis lathe, if we don't have enough work ready to go for it, that's not exciting. And I definitely wouldn't want to leap forward and put an expensive machine on the floor and then be scrambling to have it not just be consuming profits that the other machines are putting out.
0: Sure. We talked a while ago about how I bought a CMM and it's used, and you asked, like, how does that fit into your mindset? And and my answer is that whenever it's a new technology, we go used, we go cheap. If we need to run it for a while and literally throw it in the dumpster, like, I want to do that. Like our laser engraver, our Chinese laser engraver, we didn't know anything about fiber laser. We only knew, like, the flying optics, CO2 lasers. And I thought, okay, this is like $3,300 we're going to use it. We're going to try and it just at least break even once we learn enough. I'm totally okay with literally throwing it in the dumpster after that and going with a, a better brand. Right. What about that? Have you considered just getting like a the same or even lesser machine at used prices? I have considered. I haven't yet spent a lot of time looking
1: around for used machines. Mm-hmm. And there's a certain point at which at the size of our company, making those kinds of what I would call a non-refundable sunk cost, just a, we're going to spend some money, we're going to find this out, and we're just going to accept the cost of finding that out is this many dollars. And then at the end of that, we'll know whether we need to pivot, go back or continue forward. Mm -hmm. There is definitely a price threshold below, which that makes total sense. Mm -hmm. Spending $5,000 on a thing to find out if it's a good fit for us, especially if we may be able to get some or most of the money back out of it afterwards if it doesn't work out for us and we haven't abused it, that's very, very reasonable. Getting a used lathe that's inexpensive is almost certainly going to mean a significant compromise either in the age and condition of the lathe, or it's going to mean giving up a second spindle, not having Y-axis, not having live tooling. It's going to mean trading off some major capabilities. And I don't actually really have any interest in putting a much less capable machine on the floor. If I were having to teach myself how to use a lathe, buying a really simple used Haas would be what I would do Mm -hmm. because I just need to get a machine on the floor, get used to dealing with lathe setup and tooling and all that stuff because it's all new to me. Yep. But I have the skills in house in my team to do all that. We don't need that learner machine. I'm not taking a student driver and getting them a beater car. I'm taking a person who's been driving professionally for years and saying, what do you want on the track to win races with? Yeah. Yeah. I did that with John. Totally back different the equation. Yeah. Very much so. Yeah. But certainly if I did not have an experienced lathe guy in the shop, I would be going cheap used lathe.
0: Yeah, hundred percent, man. So let me throw another equation. What if your lathe guy leaves? That's a good question. What <laughs> if
1: my lathe guy leaves?
0: Yeah, now you have a really beefy grate. Like this Miano you sent me the link to is amazing. It, it it almost rivals like our. Well, I, I would say it does rival our MX because it has our MX has a lower turret, upper full milling head. This has dual turrets. And gosh, you're banking this decision on your rock star guy sticking around, and you know the speculatively like bringing in more essentially job shop work. Yeah, which I I know you'll find it. So this uh. is
1: I remember reading an article years ago about a company I forget what their industry was. I think it might have been oil and gas, but they the owners kind of took a leap and bought an enormous VTL mm-hmm. just ridiculously huge machine. They said they had a few jobs they needed it for. And then after those jobs were done, they weren't really sure what they were going to do with it, but they Mm -hmm. needed it for those jobs. They could not do the jobs some other way. So they bought that machine and they said before they were even done with those first two major jobs they were taking on, they had work lined up out the door because most of their competitors didn't have a machine in that class that could handle work pieces that size. And they said, this machine's become like the beating heart at the center of our shop because it's a capability that so few shops are willing to invest in that work from much farther away finds itself to us at top dollar because we have the capability. Mm -hmm. Now, there's a big benefit and risk to having a more exotic machine. If it's very unusual and highly specialized, work that absolutely requires it will find its way to you if you put it out there that you have this machine. The downside is if that work dries up for any reason, you have a machine that's not useful to you and very difficult to unload because nobody else wants it either. Right. But we're not talking about super exotic lathes, like a mid-sized dual turret lathe, dual spindle lathe is not crazy. It's not some wild, you've got one of five of these in the United States and there are no parts ever. And no tech has ever yeah. seen one of these machines before in his life. Yeah. I, I don't want to get into machines like that. I have no interest right. in getting into machines like that. Yep. So yes, if you depend on one or two rockstar employees to make an entire sector of the company work, you better make sure you're proactive about keeping them. Mm-hmm. and uh, as we were talking before the podcast started both you and i have in the past 2 weeks had each one critical employee put their 2 weeks notice in yep and for me it came completely out of the blue mine too and that is a an ongoing risk we are not we do not have a deep bench i do not have a backup quarterback i do not have a whole bunch of extra linebackers that i can just put in the mix We're small, which means we have one of everything. And if that one of one goes someplace else, I'm scrambling right now. This has been a very scrambly week for me and it has not been fun. In addition, we've also had one key employee out taking care of sick kids and one other employee out sick. And so I've had a lot of extra stuff on my plate plus figuring out how we're going to handle the workload of the employees leaving at the end of next week and it's a lot, it's huh. really a lot, i and I don't I, want to just take that person's workload back and put it on my shoulders and try to carry it. I need to find a person to put in that seat, but we don't have anybody spare in the company who's not already in an important seat of their own,
0: yeah, man, as you talked through that just now, I'm feeling the like the almost like the emotional weight of what it feels like when like a key guy look, we had a guy out for oh well, right now. We have two guys that overlapped on vacation time, each out for a little over a week, and we felt it. We have 18 employees, but we still felt it. We had a guy that was sick a couple times this year with the flu. One may have been the C word, but we felt it. And so I almost, so, okay, so this lathe, if you go with it, it's it's over a quarter million, right? Yes. Yeah, Close I would just say, 000. like feeling that weight, having looking at a, a two hundred fifty plus machine, and a guy's like, "Hey, I'm taking a job across town." Sorry, and you're held with a two hundred fifty thousand dollars bag. That that scares me just a little bit. You yeah. can hold a bag, but I, I personally would not want to be holding a two hundred fifty bag. I'd maybe hold a one hundred fifty or one hundred. And so, this is the
1: question: We're always talking about probabilities when it comes to risk. Yeah, and this is when we talk about. Self defense and our customers using our products, we're usually talking about carrying a firearm in the event of a circumstance that is very um, low likelihood, but mm-hmm. extremely high stakes. So the odds are very, very low, but the stakes are very, very high. And then we carry firearms for those outlier situations that happen to most people not a single time in their life. But if they do happen, The stakes are absolutely every chip you have on the table that instant. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And as you get into bigger and more expensive equipment, I remember, I think it was Gary Vee, might've been somebody else, but they were talking about placing small bets. If business is a game and the goal is to continue playing the game and you have the most success in business over time by being able to stay at the table and keep playing for the longest duration of time, then taking on any risks where failure would instantly end your company and take you off the table, those existential risks, unless you absolutely have to do them and there is no way around them and failing to take the risk will also kill your company. Like we're in the building, the building's on fire. We have to jump out the third floor window. We might survive, we might not, but we can't stay here. Sometimes businesses end up in those positions where you cannot stay where you are. Getting to where you're trying to go is not guaranteed, but you have to try it. You just have to Mm -hmm. go for it. This is not that. We could easily continue without a lathe. None of the work we're doing right now so acutely demands a lathe that we couldn't outsource it or couldn't adjust and make some parts on a mill and do some things we need. We're not looking at a situation where we absolutely have to have it right now. Mm-hmm. And so I'm looking at this risk and going, it may make sense. Certainly it will open up creative doors for me and my team to design new things that we would not probably otherwise entertain because I'm not interested in designing things that I know I can't make.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, Certainly there are certain methods and tool, like we design parts for injection molding and I don't have injection molding equipment. Yep, That's a thing that's adjacent to what we do. And it's possibly on the roadmap in the next two years to add one or two injection molding machines to our shop. Mm-hmm. But there are a number of other important waypoints between here and there regarding injection mold tooling design, injection mold tooling manufacturing, and mold maintenance that we would have to have in place before I would consider putting a machine on the floor to produce the parts because it's already relatively easy to just outsource them. Yeah. and. I do want to be building more capabilities. I want to have more control over the manufacture of our parts. I care more about the quality of our parts than outsourced vendors care about the quality of my parts.
0: Mm-hmm. So uh, I try and approach decision-making through principles, just the process, whether it's a written process or a mental process. And for me personally, there are two machines that I, I really want to buy. Number one is a Swiss. Number two is a Blanchard because we consume small parts at such high quantities. In our products, that a Swiss would make sense, but it's just like for a, a small part, a dollar. It's just I, I can't justify it financially. We're actually bringing in we we outsource the component. It keeps coming back bad. We keep either sending it back for rework, or if they can't rework it, we just take a, a short delivery. We're bringing it back in-house because it's too critical of a component where we just don't want even a single one to go through. And they're 100% inspected, so we catch every one of them. But 100% inspection, that's in theory. Like, not everything. Like, there's a chance that a 100% inspected part does not get inspected. That's just the reality of manufacturing. So for me, I just keep looking at like a blanchard grinder and I go, yeah, we could definitely bring in a blanchard grinder. We could create the floor space for it. We could probably go out and get outside work, but at this point, I just don't want to spend just short of six figures on a blancher grinder because it's another skill set. They stink, they're power hungry when we could just keep paying $50, $60, $70 per blank or per run for a local vendor. And for me, I don't know, this might be an interesting experiment for you. Design products and parts as if you did have this amazing capability in shop, outsource it. It's certainly not at all cost-effective to outsource when you're making your own components, but do it. And then if you justify it, okay, now we can justify bringing in this big machine. You, you're certainly probably taking a, a greater risk than I would certainly be comfortable with personally. For us, it's like, hey, we're going to make this part the hard way, the dumb way in-house on like our two-axis lathe. Okay, now we see that we can do it just fine on a three-axis or a a multi-axis lathe. Okay, let's go back to the two-axis, but let's robotically load it. Okay, now let's go big and then go on the MX. And we're not at this point yet, but eventually we will bar feed the MX Mm -hmm. and that incremental growth. And if you roll the dice and it doesn't work out, you just go back one step instead of going from uh, your options are outsourcing versus a $400,000 lathe. That type right. of thing. Incremental risk is the way that I go through things. So,
1: And that makes total sense. And that's how we've done a lot of the things that we currently do in the shop, which is we gradually work our way through adjacent steps yes, to get to where we want, want to go. But there are plenty of things where Adjacent steps won't get you there, or they won't get you there quickly enough or profitably enough because-
0: Oh yeah, it's adjacent- a lot
1: slower. I'll say that. Oh, it, for sure. it's, it's way slower. And depending on where you're trying to get to, some things you just have to go there all the way. I, I'm fascinated by EDM. I don't have any parts that require EDM. I don't really want to become an EDM shop, but I don't think you can buy a little like desktop hobby EDM. To figure it out and see if you like EDM and are good at EDM, right. you pretty much have to go EDM or not. Yeah, and those kinds of things. Where if I want to get into a five-axis machine, I would go Haas UMC mm-hmm. because I want to learn the process, learn the workflow, learn how to think about and design the parts, make sure all my CAM setups and pre-built configurations and all those things that I can wrap my head around all of that and only then would I consider going to a grobe or a hermla or whatever. Mhm. Yep. But not all things are like that and not all risks are equally dangerous. Certainly, the dollar value of a more expensive lathe is a serious consideration and it's mm-hmm. what gives me pause about moving forward on this. Yeah. And I deliberately try to avoid monkey like shiny syndrome. Where you get an idea, you get a gleam in your eye, you see a cool machine, you lay in bed thinking about it at night, and you decide to talk yourself into it. Yeah. I'm not currently trying to talk myself into this machine. I'm trying to figure out realistically what the risks are, how much outside work I need to balance the machine out, and how reliably I can guarantee that once I've got that outsourced work, I can keep it. Mm Mm-hmm. Because if somebody gives us some work and then two months later they pull the work, doesn't matter if I've got my rock star guy and I've got my lathe. If we don't have
0: parts for it, we have a paperweight. Yeah. The other factor that might kick in here, and it, I hardly do this, but I, I call it buy-why because I want it. <laughs> and it sounds like if you're going to go this direction, you don't have to justify it to anyone. You don't even have to justify it to yourself. That's the great thing about buy-why. Uh, Yeah. I mean, so yes, that's true, Mm -hmm. but buying things where the
1: financial commitment significantly impacts my company. Mm -hmm. It's not (laughs) just about
0: me. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. It could potentially put the company in a perilous uh, position. Look, I bought my bamboo printer, 3d printer because of buy why. And now like totally No, I bought it and it's like, we're dumping the other four printers and replacing them with one bamboo carbon X1, X1 carbon. But that's a $1,600 decision. Andrew, I I think you should go for it. I think you're sharp enough. You can make this happen. You have the human capacity to do this with your Rockstar guy. Are you going to run like your parts, Henry Holster parts? We're working on some parts for this machine. They're not ready yet. Okay. Do you... I I don't have my holster with me, but does it have standoffs, little things?
1: If I were trying to make small fasteners, standoffs, and hardware for holsters, I'd go Swiss. Yeah. Oh, sure. Because everything is very compact. Yeah. This is not that machine.
0: Mm -hmm. How about this? How about this test? Hey, Andrew, I'm retiring someone in your neck of the woods. I have this shop. I've got eight customers. They give us really hard parts. We've done it done a great job for them for 10 plus years. I want half a million dollars for the company, and it comes with one employee. Would you buy that company?
1: I would certainly consider it. It would depend. So this is in the holster space, small companies are not particularly valuable because in most cases, companies my size and smaller generally do a lot of their work just on PO basis, not on contract. And so it's one thing to buy a company that has either proprietary products or guaranteed manufacturing transferable contracts. Because if you can buy the contract and the contract stays binding, and then all you have to do is hold up your end of the deal and supply the parts to the spec at the price mm-hmm. in time, then all the onus is on you to deliver. But if there isn't a the contract or the contract's not transferable, you I would not consider buying that at all because there isn't there's no guarantee that the work stays.
0: Well, what if take this scenario out of the holster workspace yeah. and it, it's a job shop Yep. and there's no contracts because essentially that's what you're doing, uh, that you're getting into job shop work with a big machine and you already got the guy, you have the space, you don't have the contracts, you don't have the machine. Yep. It's I tricky, right? <laughs> it,
1: w- it, would, it would depend. In this case, it's a little bit less confusing than that because this would be being fit in as a piece of an overall company that I already know and understand. That's true. Yeah. And taking on somebody else's company is always like have I found all the closets that have skeletons in them here or is there other weird stuff going on? Mhm. So
0: yeah, I don't know. Well, certainly if you okay, so our huge advantage in business in both of our companies is that we're practitioners of lean. And yep. you take two shops that have the same staff same equipment, same kind of gross revenues, and you inject lean into one of them, they will always crush the other company. I'm convinced of it. Yeah. Yeah. that That's a huge thing that we haven't even touched on. I, I think, yeah, if you're set on this machine, well, okay, let me leave you with one last principle. I don't buy things because they're a great deal. Like I just, yep. it's funny. I just got an email on that grinder that I turned down. Of course, yeah. it's still available. And of now course. They're saying, hey, you know what? I don't know if you found one, but we'll honor your price. And at this point, it's not about price. It's about principle. Yeah. So it doesn't surprise me, but I'm not going to buy that. Let's say it wasn't on principle and it's just on price. I wouldn't buy that machine because it's a quote unquote good deal. I I just feel you got to make the right long-term decision. So eventually, I'll probably go Okamoto. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Certainly. For me, this I have a a vivid memory of buying my first good bass amp when I was in high school. I was saving up money. I went to the great house of guitars in Rochester and I was shopping for a bass amp. And what I ended up settling on was a little brand new, but discounted Randall 50 watt combo. Mm -hmm. Great. Comfortable carry handle, not super heavy, easy to carry around. But they also had an older, more beat up, bigger, more powerful like 150 watt amp from the the brand acoustic that had a 15 inch speaker. it was just a lot more amp. but it was older it was beat up. it was heavy enough to be a pain to move around anywhere. and I bought the Randall and I took it home and I played it for a week and I just had this like oh I should have taken the better deal. I should have gotten the bigger amp with more power for the same amount of money. And what I actually did is I went back and I traded them the Randall and got the bigger acoustic amp. And that was dumb. That Mm. was the wrong decision. I was buying an amp that was less of a good fit for my bedroom and less of a good fit for having to take to rehearsals for my jazz band. It was just less good of a fit for me all around, but I had dollar signs in my eyes because it seemed like more amp for the money.
0: Yeah, sure. Yeah.
1: And that kind of stuff happens all the time. Buying a car that's not actually a great fit for your life because you can get a good deal on it. Yeah. People deal with that all the time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I don't want to go down that road. and so I don't have my heart set on this lathe, Mm -hmm. but I'm very interested about the potential that a lathe holds for us. And I have my heart set on the idea of fully investigating lathes in a certain size and price range to see what it could unlock for us. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's a fundamentally different goal. The goal isn't get the machine. The goal is build a new capability. And if we can get a machine that gets that capability just the way we want for a price, that's going to make it a profitable part of our company from the get-go, I'm totally into it.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, certainly it's it's speculative and... People that take bigger risks and they're speculative—that's like putting a lot of money out there on the table. But when yeah. you hit big, yeah, so, yeah, it's so a we'll see. I'll risk. keep you updated on that. Yeah,
1: the the machine that I sent you that link to is in here in Indiana currently. It's a couple hours away from here. I may take a road trip and go check it out. I'm not really mm-hmm. sure. I certainly wouldn't take a road trip if I wasn't otherwise convinced based on specs and price and had work lined up that pulling the trigger on that machine was going to be a wise option.
0: Yeah. So do you know next other steps specs are, like BMT tooling? Say what BMT tooling? I don't recall. I'd have to look at the spec okay. sheet for that particular mill, yeah. that particular lathe.
1: Sure. But next steps are I already put out the quote on the machine to my banker, just to see what is current financing looking like? Mm-hmm. How long would she need to get alone together? What would the current interest rate be? Anything else I would need to know? I'm actively pursuing several leads for outside work mm-hmm. for this machine to see what kind of volume of parts, which materials, which sizes, what's available from other shops that I know in the area. Okay, And just try to find some local work that we can do that'd be a good fit for this machine. I'm not interested in trying to find absolutely anything that might not actually be that good of a fit for the machine uh-huh. just to throw work at it. I want to try to find, see if I can find a couple of jobs that are a good fit for that machine. Right. And if I can yeah. find a couple of jobs that are a good fit for that machine that have the chance to run regularly, monthly for at least a while, then that would make the,
0: the financial risk a lot less. Yeah. Now, is this a, uh, a dealer that you're familiar with? Like, Is it Yamazen or anything like that? It's not Yamazen. It's, it's Millennium.
1: I've talked with them on and off for years. I almost bought a Swiss from them years ago. I pivoted away from it. I I really did get kind of stars in my eyes. Monkey like shiny. I wanted a Swiss lathe and I was pursuing a job that was going to be several hundred thousand parts over a three or four year period. And then the entire project ended up getting canceled and the parts never got made. Mm. And I had gone up, I had checked out machines. I had a couple of quotes together. I had financing lined up. I was about to pull the trigger on it. And then the whole thing just eva- sort of gradually evaporated. Yeah. And I dodged that bullet and haven't been really actively looking at getting into lathe stuff since then. hmm Yeah. And Swiss yeah. lathes are still awesome. Of all the styles of lathes that are out there, immediately when I saw Swiss, I'm like, that makes sense to me. Yeah. I looked at that and go... Everything's compact. The tools are right there. It's super rigid. You feed the part in and out. I love the way this looks. I love the parts these make. The bar feeders on these are awesome. Like, I love watching videos from Danny Rudolph's shop because just a guy who's just got Swiss after Swiss after Swiss, and he's essentially in a an almost garage size shop. It's not right. a garage shop. It's a, mm-hmm. it's a totally legit, awesome shop. And I've actually used Danny. I've outsourced some Swiss
0: parts to Danny, mm-hmm. and he did- beautiful work. Yeah. I have too. Loved him. Tried yeah. to give him another PO, but he was too busy. So. Oh, poor guy. He needs a bigger building. Yeah. He needs I remember,
1: Swiss. <laughs> I, I remember Danny was looking a year or two ago, probably two, maybe three years ago. Gosh, time flies at potentially a much bigger building. And at the time he decided that based on the financial risk, that it wasn't worth making that leap for him. So he stayed huh. where he was. And I completely respect that choice. Every individual person's business and its ability to scale fast without breaking and the comfort zone of the person running the company, mm-hmm. all factors in because somebody who can drive with a completely level head, not nervous at hundred miles an hour is not most drivers. Mm-hmm. Most drivers start to get panicky at, at those kinds of speeds. They're not used to the road and the other cars coming past them that fast.
0: Hey, speaking of Danny Rudolph and driving, have you seen the video of him driving the forklift with his old? The one where he hits the, taps the brake too
1: hard and drops the lathe off. That one made me, oh, Oh, that's one of those things. It just makes
0: the back of your throat. Right. Clench. It's like, oh. You know what's (laughs) hilarious? This is the best part about it. He just drives back into his shop. (laughs) Yeah. He's like, turn it around. That's classic. Do you know the backstory on that? No, not really. Okay. Well, if we ever did have a guest, I'd want Danny. We'd have Danny just, be sounds, awesome. Yeah. But it sounds like that machine had just reached its end of life and it really didn't matter. Like as if he was scrapping it. So, Gotcha. But that's the thing to do. I've got several pieces of equipment that I want to drive off the pass road here in town and just make it into great YouTube content. Or like drilling the, uh, what did we get? We got an offer to um, drill my old crappy. Yeah. HP put a laptop, laptop. In, a, in a mill and yeah. tear it up. Yeah. Which I like, but it's probably, I don't know. Probably get yeah, a like OSHA this, or something.
1: this was the week, it's Halloween week. I, I saw a bunch of videos of people machining pumpkins in their mills. And I'm Ugh. just like, oh, guys, don't do that. Uh, don't, don't 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 yeah. put a pumpkin in your mill, please. D- depends on the mill, I suppose. I think, I want to say it was it was either Hermler or Kern. Somebody with like a really nice five-axis machine was carving a pumpkin. And I'm just oh. watching all the pumpkins splatter. I'm like, uh. nah, I'm not into that. I don't <laughs> like it. Yeah. Craigslist like new.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Only crashed a few times. Recently yeah. cleaned. Man. Well, we have a lot we can talk about. Are we going to retire the the wheel?
1: I think we probably should. We haven't run out of things to talk about in quite a while. We can at least put the wheel
0: on sabbatical. Okay. I want to bring something up. So I got a, a message saying, hey, I heard you and Andrew talking about like being a visionary. And The comment, the question, I'll shield it, I'll reword it, but it seemed it was a bit, it could have easily been deemed attacking, like almost like, who do you think you are that you can label yourself an industry visionary? And I went, oh, dude, no, not at all. And I asked, have you read the book Rocket Fuel? And the answer is no. Within the first 20 pages, you would understand that the relationship between... It's not about visionaries in industries like a Steve Jobs. It's not anything like that. But the relationship between a visionary in a company and its company integrator, which are two different people, and that relationship between them. So I don't know how many other people like heard that or heard us talking about it, but it's very much like... It, it is one of my favorite books at this point. It's easy to get through. It's very much like a manual of how to structure your company. And I, both of the companies I'm running right now very much work really well because there's both me serving as a visionary and then there's an integrator. And one of them is an integrator in training. But the new startup company is very much like this This guy is a visionary. We took the test at rocketfueluniversity.com, I think it is. Mm-hmm. And we were both like off the charts. You have not taken that test yet though, right? Or Nope. Yeah, man, it is so good. And so I just want to put that out there. But from the point of, I should say the perspective of, of me being the visionary, of, of sitting in that visionary seat in my company, there are so many things that I dream up that I think I talked about last time, legacy decisions, how I've decided to speak about the things that I'm dreaming of with the people in my company. That's actually a really bad idea. In fact, one of my guys, John, just today, he said, Alex and I and some of the other guys, we really want to like know what's in your head just so we can help out. And we were talking about fixturing the new product we're releasing pretty soon. And I said, yeah, that's all fine and dandy. But dude, I, I just so you know, I don't want to share what is floating around in my head because some of you may think that that's actually going to happen. How many times, John, have I come to you or, or flip it, how many times have people come to me said, hey, that thing you talked about you want to do, when are we going to do that? And I'm like, oh, I literally have not thought about it, nor spoken to any of you about within days or hours of when I shared it. So no, I'm not even thinking about that. And most people say, oh, okay, all right, just wondering. But I could see how from a big perspective, like a, taking a step back, that is frustrating. And that has been addressed in the book, Rocket Fuel, how you really shouldn't go to your workforce or your rock stars and share those thoughts. It really should go through your integrator. The integrator pushes back on you and then fine tunes or filters out some of your ideas. And then that integrator can create a process or a plan to put it into play in the company. So yeah, it's one of those books. I think you would really like it. I think you would benefit from it. I don't know how much... It Certainly... The companies need to be at a certain level to have that relationship because it really does need to be like, there is a second layer and this second layer being the integrator, that's the person that actually runs the company, like your operations guy. And a lot of Mm. smaller companies just don't have that luxury. I actually dislike the term visionary. I don't Mm -hmm. use it generally. Mm -hmm. And I
1: wouldn't ever call myself a visionary, except in the sense that It's my responsibility to find a place for the company to go. Yes. It's my responsibility to have a destination in mind. The destination is not set in stone, but we don't want to be wandering aimlessly around the economy, gradually drifting from product to product, looking just to make a quick buck. For me, vision would simply
0: mean having a direction that we're headed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, the visionary, that that communicates uh, a responsibility or a role. I've said this publicly. I don't like the word lean because most people think, oh, get rid of everything and just go bare bones. Not at all. It has nothing to do. And I've also said like that if I were to name it, it would be called flow. Let's get a nice, even flow. There's no cliffs. There's no drop-offs, no waterfalls no pools, no backups, no dams. It's just a trough with even flow. Yeah. I don't like the word visionary either because it it has too many connotations to big, big brains that we all, that's plenty of articles written about. And it's not that at all. It would be a lowercase V if anything. Yeah. I feel about the word
1: visionary, the the way I feel about the term guru. (laughs) There you
0: go. (laughs) Oh man. I, I do not like that term. Or influencer. That's such a stupid term.
1: Well, influencer is a practical expression of an actual thing. There are people who, because of their behavior and their public profile, have a much more profound influence on the behavior of others. Mm -hmm. Monetizing that and turning influencer into a career path is perverse. But the world has always had influencers. The er The world has always had trendsetters, people who are ahead of the curve and who shape the society by acting certain ways, by using certain things, by speaking in certain ways. So it's completely valid. It's not a made up thing, it's a historical reality. Only now do we have the ability for influencers to grow to such scale and still be an individual influencer that they can make millions of dollars just trying to influence people. So that yeah. is a whole modern thing. But the whole visionary guru idea to me smacks of impractical daydreaming. Yeah. So okay. And people just getting high on their own ideas.
0: These are great. So the influencer term that would drive me nuts is if if someone wakes up on a day, quits their day job, and then suddenly opens an IG or YouTube account and calls themselves a social media influencer. Yuck. Yeah. No, but if the word is assigned to someone who has millions of followers, like a Paul Akers is a definitive influencer in the woodworking and manufacturing industry. Sure. He doesn't call himself an influencer. Like he, he will never to. do that. He's clearly influential. Yeah. The there term you go.
1: Influential is right. uncontroversial. The, this or that person or company
0: is highly influential. That's the problem with deeming yourself a visionary. It's gross when people externally hear yourself doing that, but you're like, no, 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 I'm not saying I'm a global visionary or an industry visionary. I'm just saying this is, we need someone that, that can establish a vision in the company and carry the weight of that responsibility. It's going to be either this guy or that guy or me. And you can assign that. The visionary isn't always the owner. Yeah. Um, certainly, like one of the guys in my company, uh, Carlos, he is the visionary for the electronics and automation division in the company. And he's had a vision for like expanding manufacturing. So we do more custom work. And I'm like, hey, if you want to run with that, go for it. And we are, we're doing a lot more custom work and it's his vision. And then we have integrators that can make that happen. And then the integrators are responsible for developing the process. But if Carlos suddenly adds (laughs) visionary on his Instagram profile, he's gonna be like, what? That's weird. He never would. I wouldn't either. Neither would you. Paul Akers wouldn't either. But there is that distinction. You can be called that, but it can be—it needs to be from a general understanding from society that you are influencing people. You don't wake up and call yourself an influencer on day one. That's just yeah. weird. So I guess that's the distinction I'm trying to make in this conversation. Visionary is not an external term. Yes, you're doing that. You're calling yourself that because the book says you need to define that role. Who's going to be casting vision? So yeah, yep. I hope that clarifies. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And anybody who's in a particular field
1: should strive to become influential in that field. Mm-hmm. That's the evidence that your ideas and your execution are working. It's a great goal. Yeah. If you're in an industry for 10 years and it doesn't impact anybody
0: else in that industry, what have you been doing the whole time? You ain't influencing. Well, I would say, Andrew, like our to the discussion of you considering a lathe. That's the role of a visionary. And then you can have integrators to say, okay, Andrew, it sounds like you want to do this. Let's do it. Here's the plan. Or what plan do you have? How can we filter that? How can we uh, purify it and then actually put it into play? That's the role of an integrator. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So the visionary piece of it is not my favorite part of being in the company. That's not a hat I especially enjoy wearing. I understand that Currently, it's my responsibility, but it's not a thing that I'm like, oh, I want to grab hold of this and I want to make sure that no matter what else happens, that I hang on to this piece of the pie because it's my favorite part. It's not that way for me.
0: Mm. Would, but, could you imagine Henry Holzers hiring a CEO?
1: I certainly could imagine that.
0: Yeah, great. Yep.
1: But that would depend largely on what else we wanted to do. If we want to diversify the company and branch out a little bit more. Currently, holsters is in the name of our company, Yep. but I think gradually holsters are becoming more and more incidental to what we do. Mm -hmm. We're still primarily a holster company, and I expect that for a long time, we will will be primarily a holster company, but the part of manufacturing that I enjoy most is the process creation and refinement. Mm -hmm. I enjoy integrating and executing processes. And that's not confined to the field of holster manufacturing. Mm -hmm. And if we get good at building good processes, there's no reason why those processes have to stay confined to the market of holster-related products. So a real question that I'm tossing around long-term is, hey, two years from now, is Henry Holsters still the right name for this company? Mm -hmm. Should we rebrand this company, do something different with this company, or Stand up a second company alongside it that focuses just more on precision manufacturing and fulfillment. Is that direction we want to go? I don't know yet. Is it a direction we could go?
0: Absolutely, we could. Hey, can I tell you a funny story? (laughs) Shoot. Okay. So Pearson Workholding got on Instagram in 2015. Mm. I got followed by an account called Henry Holsters, and I'm like, no way that Firearms Company, the Henry Repeater. That's got to be them. It's a huge name. This Instagram is awesome. <laughs> so. Not
1: at all. <laughs>
0: Not so,
1: remotely.
0: But it drew attention from me to you because I it was like misinterpreted on my part. And so I thought holsters, Henry Repeater, firearm long long guns, same thing. That's yeah. what happens. So the importance of a, a brand, I don't know. Oh, so our buddy, I won't mention him because it's his story, but he rebranded his company. I think he's rebranded a, a few other times. And it just kind of loses like, y- you stay with the account because you're just naturally following him and he puts out lots of content. But if Dave Precise stopped wearing orange gloves, it would lose a little bit of luster. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. there's, totally. there's something to be there. And it's an entity of its own. And when you rebrand...
1: We, I've seen a couple of rebrandings in the gun industry in the past year that I just think are just terribly done. Mm-hmm. The company went from an understandable but fairly generic name to a weird, oddly phonetically spelled, incomprehensible name that has nothing to do with their products. Yeah. And it, you just look at this and go, somebody thought it was neat to take all the vowels out of this word <laughs> and then expect people to be able to still say it. What is yeah. going on here? Right. Yeah. And you definitely do lose some steam. You lose something when you rebrand. Yeah. Do you remember? But Henry Henry is a great historical name in the firearms related world. Not because we're kind of trying to step on anybody's IP, but it, it just has a old school American firearms kind of sound to it. I was talking to my guy, Chris, his last name is Nicholson. And I'm like, Nicholson, what company should we make Nicholson? Nicholson. I'm like, aha, golf clubs. And he's like, that's Mickelson. Mickelson." I'm like, oh, (laughs) (laughs) I'm not a golfer, but Nicholson, Mickelson, Schmickelson, I don't care. That sounds golfy to me. It does. (laughs) Ah, that's good. That's good. Like, Nicholson clubs sounds super legit. But the vision for all the potential directions, the downside of being somebody who enjoys building processes is that it's always attractive to build new ones. Yeah. And that can be great, or you can spend 20 years being a dog chasing your tail and never quite catching it. And the goal isn't to build the maximum number of interesting processes over 20 years. The goal is to build a profitable, sustainable company that takes care of my family and my employees, and as much as reasonable, also scratches my itch for designing processes. I don't want to work in a company, in an industry that I hate just because I need a paycheck. I also don't want to constantly be changing gears. Every time I'm starting to get some momentum, I pivot to something else and I'm back to square one. Mm -hmm. That's really easy to do. And I'm a little bit ADD sometimes. And I could see myself going
0: that direction if I don't just stay in my lane. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If I wasn't in this role that I'm in and I had uh, more of a mainstream nine to five job, I think it would be really fun to just be a manufacturing engineer just how do we make things? Great. This is the process. These are the products we use. Great. Now we're doing that successfully. How do we do it better? Do we buy new machines? Do we read, cut our fixtures? So whatever. That's probably the funnest thing that I get involved in at work these days. That and researching, research is always fun. I'm probably going to take a deep dive on my Miano lathes right now because you sent me this link. And of course, YouTube's going to serve it because it's seen I've watched one video. You know what? Going back to the lathe thing. So back in the day when I didn't have lathes, I would outsource all my turned parts. And a guy had, I don't mind sharing the brand name. He had a Eurotech lathe that had a broken part. And this is well over a decade ago. So this is not anything present day. But it was I feel like it was a draw tube or some something to do with the drop tube that broke. Because I remember he sent me a picture of the print that Eurotech supplied because he couldn't get the parts in the U.S., And they were like months out in Europe. How is the service? Do you know anything about that on Mianos in your area? I don't yet. I need to ask around. Yeah. Do you know people
1: that own Mianos in your area? Yeah. Moria Manufacturing. uh, Okay. Yeah. Has Miano and has experience with them. And has spoken really, really highly of them. I don't know anybody local in my town that has Miano. How close is he to you? He's a ways away. Okay. All right. Hey, From another states. guy that had
0: to change, had to rebrand.
1: Do you remember that? From what to what? I thought he was always Moria Manufacturing.
0: It was East, East Tech? No. Something hmm. Tech? It was really good. I don't I, recall. I, I vaguely remember that he had to rebrand because of a pseudo or close enough infringement on a uh, hmm. registered trademark. Uh, lame. Yeah. Super lame. It was a bigger company that strong-armed him. So But the more general job shop close to me where I'm friends with the owner, they
1: have Nakamura Lay's mm-hmm. and I'm going to go over there and check those out. I haven't been by in a bit and just ask him some questions about what he likes, what he doesn't, spend a few minutes in front of the controls and see if there's anything else I can glean from that visit that would impact the decisions I'd make about which direction I'd go.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Make sure they fire up the spindles too because that was one of the factors why I got rid of my Hosley. It was just loud screamer. It was crazy. Really? Yeah. Yep. Hmm. The human element, it was just not, it just bugged the crap out of us. There's a few cutters, like for example, our T-slot cutter that cuts the side slots in our vacuum chucks in our pro pallet system, that it's a, it's a custom grind. It's like an AB Tools custom grind, but yep. because it's flat, when it enters the cut, it's really loud. Like it slaps the part at that moment of impact. Yeah. And so, so there's another one, another cutter that we have from uh, another closer tooling manufacturer, custom tooling company called Acceleron mm-hmm. that it has like kind of a, I don't know what the angle is, but they modified a normal end mill and it's much quieter. And we cut the the slots in the row device with it. And that was one of the things like when that AB tool straight T-slot tool goes, like people just, you if it's running all day, you can just tell like people are irritated. You hear doors slamming, doors closing, because guys just don't want to hear it. So that would definitely be something that it's not like the most manly thing to say, oh, I don't like that machine t- because it's too loud. feels very like Gen Z, <laughs> yeah, millennial type thing. But no, it's something that it just gets on your skin. So I would have them fire up all, those, all the spindles on the machine. Well, realistically, for the price range that one of these kinds of
1: lathes is in, specifically if I'm looking at an existing showroom machine that's under power, I would want to actually have some demo parts cut ideally, and yeah. go up there and preferably if we could have them cut one of the parts that we're planning to make on the lathe. Once we get the lathe on our floor mm-hmm. in that material, we supply material, we give them the, the specs and figure out the tooling and just say, okay, let's do this. And if we don't like how it runs, don't like how it turns out, we much more informed at that point than we would be if we just went and looked at the lathe and turned it on and listened to it spin in the air.
0: It's true, yeah, yeah. Well, so, with the Haas, you would you could have fired up to three, four, five thousand RPM and just instantly known, even without cutting. Like our Duson's, especially our Puma, our largest, the legit largest lathe, it is like whisper quiet at max RPM. It whisper quiet. That's relative. You, when it is at max RPM, not in a cut, and other machines are running, you don't know whether it's on or off. That's how quiet it is. So hats off to, to those guys, on DN. So yeah.
1: Well, there's a lot of other stuff on my mind, but I think if we get started, we'll go on for the half hour. I actually had to hop out to go to parent-teacher conferences for my kids' school. So fun stuff. That's exciting stuff. I will keep you posted on the lathe progress. I'm not in a hurry. This is not Mm going to be like show up next week and say, guess what? I bought the lathe. We're not doing that. But I'm going to be trying to gradually refine my questions. And I like to make notes for myself and put down on a sheet of paper, the things or in a document, Google Docs, the things that I need to still answer to my own satisfaction. Mm -hmm. What is it going to cost to tool this machine up? Are we going to have to swap out the collets? Are we getting Royal Are we investing in royal systems for these spindles? Like what are all we going to do with this? Do we need to modify the parts catcher to make the parts we want? If we're going to get a bar feeder, what kind of bar feeder are we going to get for this lathe? If we want a bar feeder eventually, but not right away, how much money can we save up front by skipping it now? And then how does that impact our layout? Making sure we leave room for it to put the bar feeder in later. Where does this machine need to go in our shop to make sure we have access for maintenance, coolant, cleaning, all that stuff? And really just crunch through all those things so we don't end up putting a machine on the floor and then go, oh no, and hit yourself in the face. I didn't think of that. Mm-hmm. We don't want those kinds of surprises. Love it. But before we get to any of that, I need to get production parts running on my rotovice. We'll talk about that next week. Fun stuff. I'm excited.